in a section of the second chapter of Philippians that talks about an often misunderstood verse where Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We started this last week, and we'll spend a few weeks looking at this because it's such an important uh, part of what it means to be a Christian. And we said last week that this, this truly is a teaching. You could take this statement, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a, is a synonymous statement for how life change happens. That's what Paul is talking about here. The idea is, how does somebody become more like Jesus? Okay? And this is something that is written about in a lot of places in Scripture because change is such an important part of our lives. Before I proceed, it's important. I promised last week that I would do it this week, and I will do it again for as long as we talk through this, just in case you were not here. I want to be super clear about what this verse is and isn't teaching because connected to this verse, there's a lot of confusion. Often there's a lot of confusion. The first thing that it isn't teaching is that we as people have to do something to earn salvation or, or Jesus' love. Uh, that's a very poor way to understand this verse, and I think the context of it, as well as the rest of the Bible, shows us that that is not what Paul is saying. When we speak, first and foremost, about salvation, this is what we talk about. We just sang about it, the Amazing Grace song, right? It's what Jesus shows us. It's the love that he shows us on the cross. Ultimately, that love, that sacrifice, is the ground upon which our redemption in Jesus, or salvation, is built. And so I think it's important when we talk about salvation from the angle of what Jesus does, we should almost identify it as, as Jesus' responsibility. This is Jesus' salvation. We don't, we don't find God without him. And so his responsibility in this paradigm is to, is to give the gift of salvation. Secondly, Paul is saying, and this is, I think, where we have to learn how to marry these two ideas. He's saying rather pointedly that even though you can't earn Jesus' love, he just loves us because he loves us, there is something we have to do about our salvation. Once you have received or experienced Jesus' love, something is supposed to change. We should desire to love and grow into the image of Jesus. And this distinction between what Jesus did for us and what we do in light of what Jesus has done for us, as far as salvation goes, is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about what a person does to, to benefit their own spiritual welfare. We have to do something in order to nurture and develop the amazing grace that Jesus has given us, that he's shown us on the cross. This is what he means by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you have to practice your faith in a way that, that validates you actually have one, because it can be very easy in life to to function as if you have faith or to think you have faith, but, but then to have no evidence or fruit of that in your life. This is what he's talking about here. And I gave this analogy last week because I think it's an apt one that explains this kind of the potential tension anywhere that could, anyways that could exist in a verse like this. Think, think of this gift like this. Let's just say that you move to a new area and you cannot afford a vehicle. Okay, You can't afford a car. You, you're trying to get a job and you just need a car, but you don't have the means to do it. And somebody that you know, simply because they love you and care about you and out of the generosity of their heart, they come to you and they say, listen, I, I want to give you this car. I know you need it. I know your life is going to be much better with it. I know you can't get where you're going in life without it, so I'm just going to give you this car. And they make it very clear that you didn't earn the car that you couldn't pay for the car, and that even if you could pay for the car, they would not even accept it. It is just a complete free will gift to you. But the only thing, the only caveat they issue with the gift is this. They say, listen, the car is a gift. I just need you to take care of it. Just take care of the car. That's all that, that's all that I'm asking you to do here. Because if you've ever owned a vehicle, you know that you can, you can get a vehicle off of the lot and it be worth you know, $50,000, and it'd be perfect mechanically. And in about a year, if you don't take care of that thing, you can literally run it into the ground. You can neglect a, a vehicle so substantially that you still own it, but it's not really living up to its full potential. That's what we're talking about here in this tension between working out your salvation. You've been given this amazing gift, but you can so neglect that. You can, so, you can be so numb 
to the grace that Jesus shows you and so apathetic at times that it actually is like having the most amazing gift in the world and throwing it up in a closet to let it rust and decay. This is what we talk about here. And the concept here is life change. And so a verse like this is a powerful one because it shows us that life change is possible for those that are pro- for those who are in Jesus. And it begins, last week we said, we looked at a great verse, when we, we renew our minds, when we let God examine our minds. This is the angle we talked about uh, salvation from last week. One of the ways, and the logic behind this, one of the ways that we understand what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is by looking at some detailed information connected to it. Nowhere in this teaching, Paul basically says this thing and then he moves on to, to, a, to a list of things that are kind of important for us to be. So what I want to do is kind of press pause here. And I want to take this statement and then for a few weeks look at critical expressions of how one does work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That's why we're in Ephesians today, or at least connecting Ephesians to Philippians. Last week we looked at a verse that told us one of the ways you work out your salvation with fear and trembling is by letting God open your mind to his ways. By letting God renew your mind in the ways that he sees fit. In other words, you live life thinking about something one way, how you treat people, how you care about people, how you manage your time, how you manage your money, whatever it is, whatever the thing is, you likely have a way you already think about this. Part of the way that we become more like Jesus is when we actually let God have the platform in our lives to speak into our lives and say, hold up a second. I want to talk to you about how you manage your time. Or I want to talk to you about how you see your money. Or I want to talk to you about how you understand love and relationship. That is the beginning of a renewed mind. That is God, through his truth, showing us who he would like us to be in Jesus. And the key here, the way we work salvation out, is by, by be, taking that seriously. And really sitting down with God and people we love. And trying to flesh out the, the, the reality of what God wants us to become. What we are not yet in Jesus. In doing so, we begin to work our salvation out. So this is a teaching uh, that really shows us that the motivation we need to have in our heart is not based for change. It's not based or rooted in stopping behavior and starting it. If you want genuine and lasting life change, you have to have deeper motivations than that. And the ultimate motivation here is that we let God love us. We understand that to truly become like Jesus, we have to properly understand what it means to receive his grace, to receive his love, and to reciprocate it. That is the root of what it means to follow God. And so I say with a, with a lot of encouragement and wait here, if you've come here today desiring to be something you are not yet, I want to encourage you to focus less on what you do in your life to change. You almost have to stop for a season saying, I got to be this, or I need to change this. In order to let Jesus work in your life, you have to focus less on changing a behavior and more on meditating on what Jesus has done for you on the cross. This is where we're going today. The other angle we're going to look at, the next expression we look at, is if you want to become like Jesus, you have to let truth, love, and grace shape your heart in such a way that it becomes the fuel for life change. You focus less on what you want to do and more on what Jesus has done. And this is what we call the gospel. And it has to serve as both the motive and the method for all Christ-centered life change. We receive grace, salvation from the cross, and we work out salvation by, by pressing into the power and the authority and the truth of Jesus. The cross both gives us life and sustains it. And so this leads me to the first truth that I want to talk to you about today. When we think of of the cross, and this is unfortunate in modern evangelicalism, but in almost all circles, when you think of the cross, we simply look at it as like this door, this gate into this gateway into God's kingdom. But I think passages like this that that blur the line, if you will, at times with salvation and what it means and how it fleshes itself out in our lives, they show us something different. And especially in Ephesians. 
God showed us grace on the cross not only to save us, but also to change our lives. It's a double-edged sword. You can't just find the cross to become uh, a child of God and then walk away from it. Maturity in the Christian faith is continually going back to the truths of what the cross speaks to us to become more like Christ. I think that deserved an amen. I mean, but who am I? I'm just a guy that wrote this, right? Ephesians 5, uh, I'm biased, I guess. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says this, and I want to read it to you, okay? This is the, the fleshing out of Philippians 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so here, generally speaking, we'll unpack this here in a moment, what's happening here is, Paul is, is highlighting God's love for us, and he gives us this title of a, of a, of a loved child, and he, he points all of this back to the cross. He does this a lot, and so does a lot of the New Testament. So verses like this show us why Christians have been singing about God's amazing grace for centuries. We just sang about it a moment ago because it's an important reality. It's, it proclaims a truth that is essential for us to function like God wants us to function. So I've been pastoring just shy of 20 years now, not at this church alone and other churches prior. But I can tell you that uh, as a pastor and being involved in worship services, worship gatherings, worship songs come and go. They really do. And you, you almost develop a bit of a sixth sense over time with them. You can kind of figure out which are the ones that are going to be around for like eight to ten months and then you'll never hear them again. As well, you know, they, they kind of fall into this like black abyss of worship. Like this song that changed the world four years ago is now like nowhere to be found. That happens, and you get a feel for them, as well as there are times where, in quite a contrary way, there are songs you see and sense that, that you feel like are going to go the long road. There are songs that we might be singing not just for years, but maybe for hundreds of years, or tens or twenty to thirty years. So what happens here is certain songs, because of what they teach and what they show us, they really make the cut, and they become songs that are etched into the family of God past, present, and future. The beautiful thing about the church is every, every church, and I mean church capital, a lowercase c, all around the world, right? We all have things that we, we bring to the table that are fresh and new. This is what's great about the church. But we also have a Christian history. We have this wonderful pedigree that has been handed off to us from men and women who have loved God before us. Some of these songs, they make the cut. They Past, present, and future, they're going to be in in the vocabulary of Christians forever. And the reason we sang Amazing Grace this morning is because that's one of them. That's one song that is going to be, at least in my opinion, it's been around for a long time and will likely be around for as long as God has a church on earth. It's because it communicates some alpha truths. It informs all truth, if you will. It's, it's one of those truths of first importance that shapes all other truth in the Bible when it talks about our relationship with God. And this is the truth Paul speaks of in Ephesians. And he tells us to work out in Philippians. It's one of uh, many verses, right? This song teaches us, much like what we're talking about today, it's one of many verses in the Bible that show us God's unconditional love and grace for us on the cross is not just supposed to be a means by which a person finds God. It is certainly that, but it is much more than that. The benefits of the Amazing Grace song we sing also talk about the, the tangible reality of life. They, they talk about how the grace of the cross provides us a, a hope in the very present. And what we live in right now, and also in that day when we sing forever in heaven and eternity with God. This is the truth about grace. It isn't just something you find and then move away from. It's something you find and then press into. Because if you want to experience life change, lasting joy, the overarching premise of Philippians, then you have to go to the source of all joy. 
And so what happens here is Jesus on the cross, this is the greatest example of love the world has ever seen. It becomes the driving motivation for every single thing that we do as a Christian. It is why we still sing about what is perhaps the most morbid scene in the history of humanity. The Jesus Christ nailed to the cross becomes a song that we sing with great hope and enthusiasm, not because of the sacrifice. We, we, we have a weighty understanding of that. There's a, there's a pain and a pressure, if you will, applied to the fact that get, Jesus gives his life for us. But out of that death comes this amazing life, this amazing grace. And that is the fuel for how we become more like Jesus. It's recognizing the love Jesus has shown us and desiring to love Jesus in the same way. This is very important to know especially when we're looking at a subject as serious as working out our salvation to become more like Jesus. Essentially, the things we're talking about right now have the power to make you different. You think about that. None of us should ever listen to anything or meditate on anything or wrestle with something in a, in a light way that has the ability to change the course of our lives. Because we should care about our lives enough to say, if I'm going to end up at that place, I want to think head, heart, and hands what that place actually is. And so the challenge today for you is to think about whether or not you're thinking seriously enough about that place, that, that change destination, whatever it is. Because to be a believer means something very serious. This is where the cross then extends and permeates the rest of our lives. To be or permeates into the rest of our lives. To be a believer means Jesus will regularly call us, you and I, to make our lives look more like his. And we can't do that without deeply recognizing his love for us. The call to follow Christ means he's going to try to make you more like him. That's part of what we sign up for. And this is why in verse 2, Paul calls us to personally live like and sacrificially live for other people in the very same way Jesus lived for us. That whole love section in the front of Philippians chapter 2 is talking about this. The motivation for what we do is recognizing what Jesus has done for us. So today we talk about motivation again. And we could spend a lot of time examining improper motives that Christians have turned to with the hope of creating the kind of life change talked about here. We began talking about behavior modification last week. And today, at the back end of our talk, we're going to look at fear. And we talk about these things because they're, they're big-ticket items that have deceived many a Christian. We would be unwise to not highlight the big pitfalls that we often turn to, to to try to experience lasting and relevant life change. But the reality here is there isn't a whole lot of that listed right here. And I think there's a good analogy here that we're not called to examine counterfeit forms of motivation in Scripture. Not often, anyways. We should know what they are. What Paul and what Scripture constantly challenges us to do is to think about what the pure motive for change is. So you've probably noticed in this passage that Paul does not list a bunch of things we should not be doing. He's far less concerned with addressing the literally, and I mean literally, endless list of false motivational tools we can turn to for life change. And he is much more concerned with making sure that we get acquainted with the only God-approved life change motivation. This is what Philippians and Ephesians and the rest of the verses we'll study on this topic will show us. Jesus' deep love for you on the cross is the motivation for change. Just look at how Paul communicates this truth to us. We're not sequentially studying Ephesians right now. We are Philippians. But if you were to, to zero out, much like we did with, with the book of Philippians, when you pull Philippians 2.12 out of its context, it's teaching something much greater. You get this powerful teaching on love, love and motivation. And then we're told to see Jesus as Lord. And then we're told to now work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's kind of a litany of things Paul is teaching us here that shape the Christian faith. The same thing is happening in Ephesians. 
basically from Ephesians chapter 3 through the middle of chapter 5, Paul gives us this lengthy list of characteristics that evidence a person is working out their salvation. He's saying, look, if a person is really grappling and wrestling with the things of God, your life should start to gradually look like God. And that list is included, but not limited to, things like this. He says, you know, don't hold grudges, uh, don't harbor anger, uh, be a hard worker, don't be, uh, be generous, excuse me, don't be greedy. He talks about the way we speak to each other. He says, encourage one another, don't tear each other down. Uh, he talks about striving to have meaningful relationships that honor God, especially in our marriages. Uh, all of these things talk about life change. And much like what we studied last week when it comes to life change, nowhere in these lengthy lists of things to be and do in the Bible are we ever told to address them with some of these kinds of faulty or false motivations. You will never read a passage in the Bible that says, listen, if you struggle with anger, you have to deal with it by practicing anger management techniques. You will never find Paul or any other biblical writer saying that. He doesn't say, listen, if you have a problem with another person, then the way you deal with this is, Put on a fake smile in their presence. He doesn't do that. That's a behavioral change. That doesn't change the root of the grudge, right? He doesn't say, listen, for those of you that are not generous, you need to go online right now and Google philanthropy. And the first one that comes up, start giving your money away to it. He doesn't say do that. He doesn't, he doesn't address ever a life change through behavioral change. Behavioral change can happen when there's a true life change. But in the reverse, it just creates, a, it creates an action that is often disconnected from a genuine heart motive. And so the idea that life change happens when you simply try to replace an unhealthy behavior with another behavior is not true. And scripture warns us regularly against this type of idea. And any of you, let's get out of the scripture for a second and get into the practicality of life. Any of you that sought life change through a behavior management technique have likely experienced its shortcomings. So for example... Last week I shared with you how dealing with my anger was, and at times still is, a serious issue that God chooses to deal with me with. It is, it is my thorn on my side, and I gave you the history of that. That's kind of how I was raised. Um, I had a wonderful family I grew up in, but, but anger was the, that was the tool that you used to solve everything. And so I'll never forget, uh, this was especially before I came to Jesus, and I will say there were even times, having known Jesus, that people who love Jesus would, would encourage me in these ways to deal with it. They'd say, listen, I'm angry. Uh, and sometimes anger can be like, you know, explosive, but sometimes it can be, can be bitter and it can just change, it can change you. It kind of, it makes your whole life tense, right? That's anger. So anger is not necessarily that you run your car off and to the Panera off a of Dunlaw because you're so mad one day that it could explode that in that way. But anger oftentimes is just that you live in a constant state of just tenseness, frustration, right? So people would say things to me like, listen, uh, my two favorite, if you, if you want to, if you want to deal with anger, like you, then, you know, you just got to try some techniques, try this, try like whenever you're angry, stop, whatever you're doing, like as you're driving into the Panera, stop and take 10 deep breaths, just apply 10 seconds to your life, take 10 deep breaths. And, and there's a good chance that the anger will subside. Or they'd say things like, you've probably heard this. Listen, you got to find a happy place, dude. How do you tell an angry guy to find a happy place, first of all? I, I, I don't get this at all. But find a happy place. And in that happy place, you, 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 know, you think about a meadow or a valley or whatever it is, a place where there is nothing that can make you angry. Deal with it that way. And then just kind of cool off. So listen, those techniques, they always sound good when you are drinking a cup of coffee uh, in a coffee shop with a friend. But they often prove ineffective when you are in the heat of the moment. 
when anger really comes or whatever our change issue is, when it stems, when it roots itself in us and when it rears its head in the heat of the battle, these techniques are not often easily, if at all, applied. And I can tell you, uh, for me, there's a great irony in this. You know, I can remember like trying to take deep breaths with people and then thinking like, hey, dude, you having like an asthma attack? Because it seems really irregular when you're in the middle of this or happy places, uh, motiv- mo- the motivation to find like a valley or a meadow. We did not have a lot of those in Brooklyn or any in New Orleans either. The cities I've lived in did not have, you know, there was some greenery like by design, but there weren't places where you could see lilies and like antelopes skipping through the field. That just wasn't there. And so the reality with this is eventually when you stop breathing, you're still standing in an angry place. Or when you open your eyes, here's the reality of the happy place. You might be in that, let's just say you find it for 10 seconds, but you open your eyes and immediately you're standing in an angry place. Nothing around you changes. So it's kind of naive to think that that can, can really create lifelong lasting change. Maybe it helps you cope or deal for a few minutes, but I don't know that it's the kind of thing that over time is really going to make you a person that is different than the root issue you're dealing with is. And so lasting life change must be motivated by the heart deep commitment to live your life in the same way that Jesus did for you. You need something deeper than techniques is what I'm saying. And that is why sandwiched in the middle of this lengthy list of all these things Paul says God wants us to be in him, uh, to work out in him, are these powerful clauses. Follow God's example. Be compassionate to others. Why? Because Jesus was first compassionate to you. Love others as a beloved child of God. Why? Because Jesus loved you as a beloved child first. Walk in the way of love. Why? Because Jesus loved you when you were unlovable. All of these things are rooted in this idea that Jesus has first been for us what he asks us to be for ourselves and for other people. And so by the nature, the the logic of the the theology of the cross, you can't do this on your own in the Christian faith. Jesus does it first so we don't have to do it alone. He gives himself away on the cross So that we can one day sing about grace and resort to it and rely on it for change. His whole life shows us the motivation for all change, all behavior, must be rooted in a deep love for God. That's what this means. And this is why on earth we make a grave mistake when we just see what Jesus did on earth, his words and his deeds, and the list of life change characteristics the Bible gives us, or says we should pattern our lives after, we, we see this as a mistake when we just see these as it's a checklist of things we need to be or do. I guess in its purest form, in its simplest form, it is that. But the truth is that it's much more than that. When you try to say, the Bible says this, so do this, over time what happens, you adopt a, a form of Christianity. And I would even say that Scripture would identify this as a form Form being the key word of, of godliness. It's kind of sort of like godliness, but not exactly pure. It's a type of folk Christianity called moralism. And what happens is it causes a person's heart to trade allegiance to God solely because we think in him or by doing something for him, we'll get something in return. Here's what happens if, if, you, if you think that uh, be, behavior modification is going to make God either love you or do something in your life. It actually breeds what I like to call a spiritual entitlement. And it looks like this. You say, listen, God, you know, I am the most stressed out person on earth. And I know there are lots of verses in the Bible that deal with stress. So I'm going to go and read all these verses on stress. And then you need to change me. That's what happens. In return, because I check the box and read the stuff about stress, I should be less stressed. And then when you wake up one day and you're not less stressed, you might then begin to question the love that God has for you. It's a spiritual entitlement. Or God, or you say something like this, God, listen, I'm going to love people because, because you say that I need to love people. 
And I've heard that if I'm nice to people, that will make me a happy person. But I'm still loving people and I'm not happy. What's going on here? Then you stop loving people and you get angry at God. Or you say, listen, I'm going to learn to be a generous person by tithing my whole life back to you and living sacrificially for other people. I'm going to open my eyes, God, to the world around me and I'm going to see needs and I'm going to start living like you would. But the truth is that wherever I make a time investment or a money investment, uh, I expect a full return for it. Like I want a tenfold return for that. And if I don't get that, then I'm going to really question whether or not I should be loving and caring for other people like this. You see, what happens is over time, a person who thinks like this, this is the super, if you, if you need the, the thing that I think breaks God's heart most in all of what we're talking about today, in this issue, is that a person who thinks like this, they learn over time to fall more in love with what they think they can get from God than, than God himself. And that's a problem. The love relationship is no longer built on being in the presence of Jesus. It's being in Jesus' presence because you think he's going to do something for you. And that just about guarantees that he probably won't do anything. And even, even worse, perhaps, is if he does something, we're, we're functioning in a way before God that is actually unhealthy. It might require corrective behavior at times. Jesus might, Jesus might have to speak to us in ways that are hard to hear. Because when it comes to life change, this person, you think about it, the cross says, my son is yours, right? But they don't, people don't see Jesus like this. They don't want to experience the relationship that God offers us in Jesus like that. And therefore, we can't experience change. We don't want to walk in the ways of Jesus, which creates real and lasting change. We just want to use God as a utility to get something from him. We want him to do something for us. And in this case, we say, I'm going to do these things um, because you should change me in the end. result. If I just can live as a happy person long enough, then you should make me a happy person. But I don't know that that's exactly the way that it works. Because disconnected from where you are and where you need to be is the reality that God wants to shepherd your heart. He wants to encourage your heart. He wants to be a part of the labor process to help you be what you need to be. Because at the end of that road, you actually become something different. But if you adopt that road, what happens is in doing so, you take the gospel power inherent in this passage, these teachings we're t- talking about, and we reduce them to powerful, uh, powerless excuse me, life change techniques. We are disconnecting them from the love motivation God is so deeply concerned with us needing to change. There's an old story, and I've read this to you guys a couple of years ago. I want to read it again because I think it's a good one. Uh, there's an old story that a, a famous preacher named Charles Spurgeon, if you've ever read him, uh, you should, pretty solid guy. In the last century, he, he gave this kind of analogy about a king and a nobleman that highlights this truth beautifully. It'll be behind me as I read it. So if you will, just kind of read along with me. He wrote this. He said, once in a kingdom long ago, no nap time right now, I'm just telling you. Better stay awake here, I right? Stay focused. Super important part here. Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot and decided to give it to his prince because he loved him. And when he gave it, the prince discerned his motive and knew that he expected nothing in return. There's a purity and generosity here. So as the gardener turned to leave, the prince said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. Okay? It's like that car we talked about. It is yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. However, a nobleman heard of this incident and thought, man, if that is what the prince gives a gardener in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give to a nobleman if I gave him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, you expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. This is the analogy that I'm trying to kind of force here. 
the truth is that when we go to God like this, um, for anything less than we change because Jesus loves us, what happens is we create a bartering system with God. And what happens is working out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling can actually become something very unhealthy. Uh, fear and trembling might take on definitions. We'll talk about this here in a moment, but they might take on definitions that have an abusive tone in our relationship with God. That's not a good thing. The cross teaches us something very to the contrary. That working out your salvation begins by first finding your proper identity in the truth that you're a beloved child of God. In other words, you give him the carrot just because you give him the carrot. That's the kind of way Jesus loves us. You don't give him a horse because you think you might get five fields out of it, right? The greatest motivation you can have to change is birthed out of recognizing and reciprocating the love your king has for you. And I think if, if you take away one sentence from everything I've said today, I would ask that it be this one. The greatest motivation you can have to change is birthed out of recognizing and reciprocating the love your king has for you. And so the true power and blessing of the cross when it comes to life change is that God just doesn't give you his power to change. He doesn't say, I'm God, I can make you different. That's moralism, right? In other words, God, while there is a, a very clear morality in the Bible, God didn't die for the world to make the world a more moral place. That's a byproduct of the love of God's, of, of God's love for us. You, you love God and you change to become more like him. And that, cl- that place is a clear object of change at the end of our spectrum. It's not just change for change's sake. It's change to become more like Jesus for those of us in his kingdom. And the reality of this is that we're invited not just to become something different, but we're invited into the process of becoming something different. And that is the personal intimate presence that Jesus makes available to us. So when you understand Jesus's grace on the cross like that, and you don't think that God sees you like a utility, right? That's the other side of this is if you see God as a utility, you will likely think he sees you as a utility. What happens is, is if you recognize God loves you, it changes the motivational structure in your heart that causes you to change for the right reasons. You know, you do things for your kids, if you have children, because you love them. You, you, you don't even expect, you hope, but you don't expect for reciprocity there. You just do for them because you do for them. That's the kind of idea, like with an infinite well of love and grace connected to it. We still can have grudges and bad feelings and temperaments with our children. We can do the right thing, sometimes even with the wrong motives. But this is not the way it is with God. That, God applies that to us w- with complete purity. There's never a false motive or impurity in that. And I'm not saying that we can get to that level, but I am saying we should be striving to give the carrot away just because we give the carrot away. Because you see, if, if you want to be something different in Christ, then you have to know that God loves you. And I will just tell you that the, the purer this motive is in our hearts, the purer our change motives and methods will be for God to bring about change. You start creating, this is an analogy I use a lot, you start creating a good soil for God to plant himself in. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. The cross, first and foremost, is the, it's salvation, but it's more than salvation. It's the power for everything else. And deeply understanding Jesus' grace on the cross is, is a compass that God gives us for life change. So you think about the cross, it needs to be like your GPS. Um, most of you in this room, I'm sure, use GPS. I've not seen anybody at our church popping out of Rand McNally and still mapping themselves out that way, right? We use GPS because it's like this instantaneous voice of guidance in our lives. And 
Um, one, one thing, one fault I have in life is I'm a very directionally challenged person. I've actually gotten better as I've gotten older. I don't know if that's experience or pride, probably a, a bit of both. You just get tired of your wife making fun of you driving around because you were supposed to go to La Fiesta on, on, on Nova and you ended up in Mississippi. That's like what a Wednesday night looks like for us sometimes. Cause, uh, I grew up in a couple of cities where frankly, like everything was numerical and in order. Like the, in New York, the numbers went up and down and you went 69th street, 70th street. It was very hard to get lost. You just, you could plot on a map where you were going, but most places around the country are not like that. You gotta, you gotta know the lay of the land and you're driving around bodies of water and it's not necessarily a linear grid. And so GPS is kind of like life for me in a car. I use it. I use it a lot. And if you rely on GPS, you kind of get the point that I'm making here. It, it really is the difference between you getting where you need to go and you wasting a lot of time getting where you need to go and maybe even not ever getting where you need to go, right? Guidance like this is the role that the truths of the cross are supposed to play in our lives when it comes to life change. Consider the cross an ancient world GPS, that it, except it's for spiritual guidance, the more deeply you understand the life-changing power of the cross, the less likely you are to be tempted to adopt the two most common but faulty change systems we look to in life. The first we've addressed, behavioral management. And the second is fear. On the contrary, choosing to meditate on a beautiful truth that you've experienced, on Jesus' love, it changes things. It, it begins to direct you in a different way. It creates a soil in your life, a fertile soil for God to grow himself in. And so understanding God's love on the cross for you like this, it tends to foster a deep sense of trust and thankfulness towards God. I can tell you that for the most part, unless I see water in front of me, I'm going to do what the GPS tells me. I have learned with GPS that most times even when my hunch is different, and there are times when I'm like, it just feels like it's to the right. And I go to the right, I am lost. The GPS is almost always right. With God, he is never wrong. And so over time, there is a trust and a thankfulness that begins to build between us and him. When we recognize that he is constantly, we'll listen to him, he's guiding our lives in ways that are right and good and true, and that will ultimately honor him and benefit us. He causes us and calls us to make changes throughout our life. These are the, this is the light switch we talked about last week. It's the gospel light switch, the Jesus light switch. There are times when Jesus says, I'm going to open your mind to this. I see this in you a lot. And this has to change now. Flip, and then God begins to address something in your life. What we're about to talk about now is you don't want to follow that. You don't want to pursue that light, if you will, by behavior management or through fear. Because that is like pouring weed killer on what God wants to do in your life. The Bible is incredibly clear that using fear to motivate life change is detrimental, and it directly violates the message of the cross. The cross takes away these negative emotions, right? Yet sometimes we still resort to them to try to find peace and open joy, and we cannot. And so a quick point of clarification, you're probably saying Philippians 2.12 says, Anthony, that you need to work your salvation without with fear and trembling. This seems like contradiction here. I want to share with you that the word fear in Scripture never, if, when it's being applied to God, it never talks about the kind of abusive fear that when we hear fear, that's probably not a good word in our, in our vocabulary. And maybe it's even connected to some unhealthy things in life. But the truth is, fear, uh, the great proverb uh, that talks about uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or here working out your salvation with fear and trembling, this is not talking about abusive fear. It's talking about a, a, a real level of love and respect. There's, there's a fear associated with God, not because he's abusive, but because you recognize his benevolence. You recognize his grandeur and how great he is. And there is really a rightful cause to be afraid. But we don't need to be afraid because the truth of what Jesus does makes us beloved children of our God. 
a God who never takes advantage of us or abuses us. So fear is, generally speaking, referring to a general love and respect for God and others, not an abusive totalitarian rule. And whether, or la- whether we like it or not, fear-based motivation, the unhealthy side of this, is still alive and well today. And it can be seen everywhere. You can see it very explicitly in modern advertising. We'll start here. Most advertising is designed to get you to be slightly afraid of something in order to buy something. Let me give you two very obvious examples. Uh, The first and probably most obvious is when it comes to home security systems. They always show like some innocent family sleeping and in the middle of the night, and this is a petrifying thought for a good reason, right? In the middle of the night, somebody kicks a door down or breaks a window and they come into the house and they hear an alarm right and then the guy or whoever it is leaves and then police are there and then all of a sudden you see the big signs in the front yard ADT or the idea here is that you should be very afraid of somebody breaking into your house we should be but the truth is that with this system the way we get rid of the fear is you put a system in place like this buy this and the fear will go away then everybody's sleeping like you know perfectly in the next episode right or my favorite commercials and I've referenced this company before, is Subaru. I think, honestly, they have the best marketing in the world right now. And I can tell you, I'm I'm not a very gullible person, but every time I see a Subaru commercial, I'm like wanting to take my credit card and go to the Subaru dealership and just buy it out, right? Their their, their ads are great. There's a recent one that just came out like two weeks ago. You've probably seen it. Uh, it shows a, a bunch of teenagers. It's like seven or eight different kids. They're anywhere from you know 16 to 18 or so. This is just by guesstimating the commercial. And all of them sequentially are in these serious car accidents. And, and you know, wreck by wreck, you see this same thing happening. You've got a kid up on a pole or a kid's T-bone or a kid's in a ditch. And they're on the phone with their parents. And they all start out saying something like this. Mom, Dad, I'm super sorry. Like, they're, they're petrified. They wrecked the car right they've wrecked the car and the response is the same every time they keep going through these 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 kids and the parents are obviously and rightfully more concerned with the fact that you are safe you know we can replace the car we can't replace you that's the whole premise of the commercial and i can tell you if you have kids watching kids being car wrecks is pretty scary i mean it definitely evoked a uh, an emotional image in my heart but then what happens at the end of the commercial is highest safety rating out of all cars and you know again 2016 and so the point here is there's a fear of, of an accident. And obviously you put your kids in the middle of that and it's even more fear. But the solution is the Subaru. Get the Subaru and your kids are safe. I bought three of them this week. Brand new. <laughs> Brand new. I'm trying to buy a fourth. but taking up a collection afterwards, right? It made me want to buy a Subaru. It really did. So listen here. Inside the walls of the, outside the walls of the church, right? Marketing, and I'm not even saying that's bad marketing, but I'm saying it does tap into the primal nature of fear, and it's trying to get us to change your behavior, to drive a different car. Inside the walls of the church, this fear motivation can be found too. And this is made evident to me. Uh, as of late, there's been a lot of like documentary stuff on religion, not just Christianity, but certainly Christianity is a prevalent religion. And so I watched an interesting interview on the History Channel with a prominent pastor about how there, it was, it was a, a, a show on actually on fear. And it talked about how throughout history, the role of fear, and in particular with the Christian faith, kind of leveraging hell against people, uh, played a predominant role in, in creating change. They were basically looking at how, how change, since the beginning of time as we know it, has been a tool people have used to bring about change in other people. And they interviewed this Christian pastor, 
uh, to talk about this. And it, fear and hell is a pretty divisive subject. But here what happens is you, you never see a guy on TV that's like a Christian pastor that's rational and moderate. They're always like irrational and a little crazy. And so you hear this and it drives you nuts. But nonetheless, he's got more of a platform at this point in his life than we do here. Right. Uh, so what happens is, is they ask the guy, uh, tell me about uh, fear in the role of you being a pastor. And he basically said, I'm a big fan of it. He points out that throughout history, fear has been a powerful tool that people have used to get people to do things, to change life. And he specifically said, I mean, I'm quoting him now. He said, uh, when it comes to teaching and preaching, he said, I use God's wrath all the time to get people to live right. In other words, I want you to live right, whatever that means. And then I'm going to use fear to bring it about. So before we go on here, let me say that uh, there is some truth in what this guy is saying. Because God's wrath actually is a very real thing. I don't want to be imbalanced in what I teach you on a weekend. The Bible has quite a bit to say about wrath. So I'm not trying to deny that at some point in this guy's belief system, there is some truth. I'm merely trying to put out that there is much less truth. And we might even say it's a completely imbalanced truth in what he's saying. Because while he's talking about fear or motivating through fear, he's neglecting the fact of what I call God's A a plan. Judgment and fear and wrath are all through the Bible. But wherever you find them, you see God always makes a way for grace. In other words, wrath is what happens when one does not love Jesus. Even in those places in the Gospel of John where wrath is very strong and clear, where you might try to motivate through fear, what happens is you, you always have the, the, the nature of who God is. His plan A is not wrath and fear. It's never been that. And to be involved in a, a, a church body or a religious worldview, whatever it is, where fear and wrath are pushing you to be something is likely going to end up in an abusive place. The A game for God is love. And then fear has a proper place in the, the paradigm. The cross says, no, not fear. Love is what I offer you to be something different. Love is how you pursue me. It's how I pursued you. So hear me out here. While the fear of something can certainly be a starting point for life change, God can use that, it can never be the ending point for life change, for genuine life change. At some point, whatever we are trying to milk out of that, it's it's not going to stick. At some point, it has to be connected to the wonderful motivational love Jesus has shown us on the cross. And I'll leave you with this this little closing verse and statement. Paul himself pointedly addresses fear-based Christianity. If you need something more powerful for why we should not resort to fear for change it's this romans eight fifteen. and it'll be behind me he says for you and he's speaking to a body of believers for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear here fear is is actually connected to slavery it's like you're putting yourself back in bondage that jesus has freed you from you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you receive the spirit of sonship or daughtership. We are now children of the living God. And because of it, we now cry, Abba, Father. And that verse teaches us when it comes to fear, if it's driving your life, it's because you're wrongly seeing God as something abusive. You see God as ruling with an iron fist, and you don't see him as a good father, as a benevolent king, as a God who cares for you. And that's where the beauty of the promise of life change is. In all of this that we've talked about today, The promise of life change that Jesus offers us, it reminds us uh, about two incredible poles when it comes to working out our salvation with fear and trembling. The first is that it's almost a twofold promise, you might say. The first is that on one hand, God loves us so deeply that he unconditionally accepts us as we are in Jesus. Whatever you struggle with, the, the reality of Jesus is that he's good with that. To know Jesus means he wants you to bring that to him. 
He's not saying, man, you're an angry dude. Stay away. He's saying you're an angry person. Come to me. Let me deal with that yoke around your neck. Let me show you that I will love you no matter who you are and where you're coming from. That is an incredible truth. That should motivate every fiber of our being. If you knew somebody cared for you that much and was willing to receive you as you are, that should make us want to go to that person. That's one side of the cross. But on the other hand, the cross continues to evidence that same love for us in a different way. What we learn from the cross also is that even though God loves us unconditionally, he loves us too much to leave us that way. He says, come to me because you're angry, but journey with me now. I want to help you no longer be angry. That's the difference. Let's work now on this so that you're no longer an angry person. The cross both saves us and gives us the power to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He puts anger, whatever the sin issue is, the change issue, uh, insecurity, anxiety, fear, the cross kills that. It buries it in the dirt. And then he processes that for you with the rest of your, for the rest of your life. He works it out with you. So don't hear this as a verse that is negative. And as we close this morning, ask yourself, is the power of Jesus' love for you on the cross your ultimate motivation for life change? Or is something else, behavior management, fear, something I haven't even talked about, driving change, the expectations of others? My gosh, this is one of the biggest ones. I'm trying to be something because everybody's asking me to be something. You want to drive yourself to the loony bin function like that. You have 10 people in your life, they'll have 75 expectations of what you should be. And at some point, you have to be able to hear the most valuable expectation. This is what your Father in Heaven needs you to be. That starts to shape those voices. It gives you a confidence and peace in that. If you're resorting to something else for change, then go back to God with a childlike faith. An amazing grace He offers you on the cross. Let that be what drives you. Let the fact that change is not only possible, but it is guaranteed in the Christian faith. Change is guaranteed when you press into Jesus. You might look differently at the end of the days than you expected, but the truth is God says, if you come to me, I will make you more like my son. Change is possible, not because we can do something about it, although we have a great responsibility in it. I hope you've, you've heard that today. It's possible because Jesus made the way for it. So as we move into response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your motivations in life and what you want to be, and what are you going to let him do about it in your heart this day? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for another teaching that shows us that the, the power of the cross, God, is, is something truly that we should spend our time thinking and dwelling on. The cross, God, is something that, man, it redeems, but it also gives us the power to be something new in you. And that is truly the definition of life change. It's, it's to become something tomorrow that we are not yet today. So my prayer today, Father, is that as we think about who we are in you, that we would recognize you receive us as we are. When we come to you, you never come to us with a hand of judgment. God, you, we come to you and you are with open arms listening to where we are. So I pray today we would have a trust in our benevolent Father to the point where we would let you speak to our hearts and work that out in our lives. I pray today, no matter how we've entered this room, if there truly is a change issue in our lives that we need to deal with, that this would be the day that we, we truly, with the right motive, work it out with fear and trembling um, before you, the grace of your Son, and a body of people in this church that I know love and care for everybody in this church. Don't go it alone is our prayer today. And help us, God, to stay true to that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.